millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On the Feast of St. Martin, the new Pope went down from the palace to the Church of St. Peter, for the ceremony of his coronation, and at the altar of St. Gregory, the auditors bring the vestments, he was robed for mass. And at the moment of his coming forth from the chapel of St. Gregory, the clerk of the chapel, bearing a long rod on one end which was affixed some toe, cried aloud as he set it aflame. The new pope, the mass being ended by him, ascends a lofty stage made for this purpose, and there he is solemnly crowned with the triple golden crown, by the Cardinal of Ostia, as the Dean of the College. And afterwards, still robed in the same white vestments, he, as well as all the prelates otherwise, rides thence through Rome to the Church of St. John Lateran, the cathedral proper of the Pope. Then, after turning aside out of abhorrence for Pope Joan, whose image with her son stands in stone in the direct road near St. Clement's, the Pope, dismounting from his horse, enters the Lateran for his enthronement. And there, he is seated in a chair of porphyry, through which a hole has been cut for this purpose, and is examined by one of the younger cardinals. And then, while a te deum is chanted, he is borne to the high altar. The Chronicle of Adam of Usk. Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.3, Pope Joan, What is Myth Shall Never Die. I hope you all enjoyed my joint episode with Brie from Pontifact last time and considered yourself all fully boned up about the papacy. That was the last of our two introductory episodes this season. Today, we dive into the first episode proper. In the last season on folk heroines, we dealt with a lot of semi-mythical or legendary figures, whose existence was highly disputed. I bet you all thought we were done with all of that. But, alas, no, as we are starting this season once again with someone who almost certainly did not exist. So instead of looking at Joan's life, I'll instead be looking at all the accounts written about her, looking at how they changed over the years, 
before asking the simple question of why the myth emerged and how it has been debunked. But before I get into all of that excitement, I'd first like to thank all of my wonderful Patreon supporters who keep this show going. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also get in touch with the show via my website at theotherhalfpodcast.co.uk, where you'll also find all the episodes. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The legend of Pope Joan is quite possibly the most intriguing and enduring of Vatican myths. For hundreds of years, from the Middle Ages right through to the modern period, it was sincerely believed that a woman managed to trick the Christian world into accepting her as Pope in Rome, and that she was only discovered when she unexpectedly gave birth in the middle of the street. This story is related by otherwise relatively reliable chronicles from multiple countries and even the Vatican's official records. The version of the tale, or at least part of it, that I related to you in the introduction, comes from the pen of Welsh chronicler Adam of Usk, a clerical lawyer and advisor to archbishop and kings who spent four years in Rome in the early 15th century. His chronicle is a key source for the feeling of the peasantry in late medieval England, but his time spent in Rome gives his story of this papal procession and the lingering influence of Joan some credence. But the fact is that Joan almost certainly did not exist. She is a fiction. To quote one Joan expert, she is a woman who never lived and yet refuses to die. But how? How could the papacy allow a story this astonishing, this embarrassing, to survive for centuries? Well, that's what I'm here to tell you. But before we get into that, let's look at the most commonly told versions of the story. As, like with all myths, there are a few different versions out there. So let's start at the beginning, which is a very good place to start. The first telling of the Joan myth comes in the 1250s from the quill of a French friar called Jean de Mailly. While there are some references to Joan in sources dated to before this time, these are all quoted in accounts from after the 1250s, and all have doubts as to their authenticity. It's not very long, so I'll read it in full. Quote, Concerning a certain pope, or rather female pope, who is not set down in the list of popes or bishops of Rome, because she was a woman disguised herself as a man, and became, by her character and talents, a curial secretary, then a cardinal, and finally pope. One day, while mounting a horse, she gave birth to a child. Immediately, by Roman justice, she was bound by the feet to a horse's tail, and dragged and stoned by the people for half a league. And, where she died, there she was buried. And at the place is written, O Peter, father of fathers, betray the childbearing of the woman Pope. This first account of Joan establishes many of the classic aspects of the legend. We have a woman of extraordinary talents pulling the wool over the eyes of the Roman establishment for years, rising up the ranks to become Pope, only to be discovered when she unexpectedly gave birth in public, leading to her being violently killed. He gives her seven years on the throne, 
succeeding Pope Urban II in 1099. This version of the story was repeated in a few minor chronicles of monastic tomes, but the account that expanded the audience of her legend greatly came a few decades later from a different person's quill, that of a Bohemian friar called Martin of Opava, in his Chronicle of Popes and Emperors, which I will also read for you. Quote, After Leo, John, an Englishman born in Mainz, reigned for two years, seven months and four days. It is claimed that he was a woman. In her adolescence, she was taken to Athens, dressed as a man by the man who was her lover. There she made so much progress in the various branches of knowledge that she had no equal. It was for that reason that she next taught the liberal arts in Rome and had high officials as her students and audience. And because her conduct and her learning were so highly respected in the city, she was elected Pope by unanimous vote. But during the course of her papacy, her companion made her pregnant. But she was unaware of the time of her delivery, when, while making her way toward the Vatican coming from St Peter's, seized with the pains of childbirth between the Colosseum and the Church of St Clement, she gave birth and died right at the precise spot where she was buried. The Lord Pope always turns aside from this street, and it is believed by many that this is done because of the abhorrence of this event. He has not been inscribed in the catalogue of holy pontiffs by reason of the non-conformity that the female sex involves in this matter. This version dates the reign of Pope Joan to being between 855 and 857, which has become, with a few decades of leeway, by far the most common dating for Joan. But otherwise, Martin follows Jean de Mailly's template, adding some extra details and embellishing here and there. She is now English, and, well, German as well, but came to Rome via Greece. There's the notion of her being under the spell of a lover. But the most crucial new bit is the additional detail of her discovery. Martin has it happening in an alleyway between the Colosseum and the Church of St. Clement, which is, and was, the most direct route between his two most important churches, St. Peter's Basilica and the Lateran Basilica, the latter of which was attached to his main residence. And because of this shameful incident, Martin has future popes refraining from using the route, instead taking the long way around. He also has a neat way of explaining why her name never appeared on the papal lists, not even under her male pseudonym, as it was stricken from the record, like Wahlberger Black blasting names from the family tree. So these were the first written versions of the story. But of course, this doesn't mean that they were the source. Like all legends, they would have begun organically through the oral tradition. And only when it reached a critical mass or the ears of some influential person who could read and write would they be considered worthy enough to be written down. Indeed, some of the earliest versions of the Joan myth were written as gossip. One of my favourites is by a Viennese townsman called Jansen Einikel, written around the same time as both of the above, but clearly separate and, it has to be said, rather uncertain on the facts. Quote, There was in Rome a woman who had a beautiful body and who disguised herself as a man. One day she was elected Pope, for she was held to be a hero agreeable to God. What she did that was extraordinary while she was Pope, I cannot say, so I must remain silent. But about her there is one thing that I must say, she was not spared, and what they did to her that I know well, for she had to suffer a misunderstanding aimed at her honour, and was obliged to leave Rome. I think you can agree that is a lawful lot of words to say not a lot at all. But anyway, the Joan story was told in other chronicles over the late medieval period in Europe, 
and even made it as far as Constantinople. It also makes it into chronicles in other places as well, such as Adam of Usk's chronicle at the passage that I read it to you at the beginning of this episode. If you remember, this was his recording of the coronation of Pope Innocent VII in 1404, where he states that the Pope refused to go down the street where Pope Jane's uncovering is supposed to have happened. He states that there was a statue too of her there, and that is also reported in other sources. As a side note of the statue, there does appear to have been one in the alleyway of a woman with a child. It doesn't exist anymore, but it seems likely it was probably either of Madonna and child, or, and this seems more likely to me, it was a pagan statue from the ancient period with an unclear origin. We can, though, be fairly sure that it did exist, as it appears in so many sources with eyewitnesses definitely saying it was there, including the great reformer Martin Luther, who wrote, quote, In Rome, there is a stone monument to commemorate the Pope, who was really a woman, and who gave birth to a child on that very spot. I have seen the stone myself, and find it astonishing that Popes permit it to exist. Sticking with the Protestants, it will not surprise you to hear that they use the story of Pope Joan as a stick with which to beat Catholics. The best example of this was in a pamphlet written by Protestant reformer Pier Paolo Vigerio called The History of Pope John VIII, who was a prostitute and a witch, which he wrote in 1556. Quote, About 700 years ago, the devil gave the papists a most worthy leader, a fat prostitute who ruled the church, said solemn masses, gave benedictions and absolutions, created the bishops and other prelates. What should happen but her holiness became pregnant and gave birth in the presence of all the clergy and Roman people. Shame! Oh miserable papists! Ridiculous and stupid! This is clearly a polemic and not a real historic account, but it still contains all of the key features of the traditional Joan story, albeit again with some additional bits added. Indeed, the story was so believed that it did finally make it into the Vatican's official history. In the late 15th century, the Vatican librarian, Bartolomeo Platina, was commissioned by the Pope to write a history of the papacy, and in it records a story so similar to that of Martin of Apava that I won't bore you with reading it out again. However, there is one part of the story left to tell you before we go on, and it concerns a chair. Let's head back to the late 13th century, not long after Martin wrote his most famous account of Joan, but moving slightly west to the French Abbey of Saint. There, a Benedictine friar called Geoffrey de Coulon wrote an account very similar to Martin's, but adding this extra detail. Quote, It is said that this is why the Romans established the custom of verifying the sex of the elected Pope through the opening in a stone throne. Now, this detail was not repeated in very many chronicles for another hundred years or so, possibly because of the sheer popularity of Martin of Apava's account, and so it doesn't appear again until Adam of Usk, who, again, if you remember, mentions this so-called right of verification in his account of Pope Innocent's coronation. Now, if you've forgotten, don't worry, it's so amusing, I'll repeat it again. Quote, And there he is, seated in a chair of porphyry, through which a hole has been cut for this purpose, and is examined by one of the younger chronicles. And then, while the Te Deum is chanted, he is borne to the high altar. Please join me in speculating why it had to be a younger cardinal who inspected the Pope's genitalia. Perhaps that they were worried that the old ones would die of shock. Or maybe, you know, other reasons. Now, Adam of Usk wasn't an eyewitness to this. He wasn't a cardinal and wasn't a member of the papal court. 
It also doesn't make much sense, because Adam has it clear that Pope Innocent had already been made Pope before this verification rite was performed, which seems rather a bit too little too late to me. However, he is not the only writer to mention it going forward. Indeed, he seems to have opened the floodgates for testicular inspection, and all seem to agree the presence within the papal coronation procedure of the Pope sitting on a chair made of porphyry, which is, so you know, a very hard purple stone, so that, you know, someone can check his balls. Some say that this person merely looked at the testicles, other have clerics touching them so they can be really sure. There is even a little phrase that they are supposed to have announced once they have made their inspection. Quote, Habet duos testiculos et beni pendentes, which translate as, he has two testicles and they are well hung. When we get into the Renaissance period, this part of the coronation ritual seems to have become an excuse to show off the masculine virility of the Pope which one might think unusual for a supposedly celibate person, but then again, as we all know, Renaissance popes were anything but celibate. The best example of this is in the account of Piero Valeriano, a protégé of Medici Pope Leo X, where he describes a far more public scene than others. Quote, In the sight of the entire populace, within the portico of St John's, which faces the vast square people by the throng gathered there, the new pontiff is obliged to demonstrate his virility by his abundant testicles. However, even then, there are those that agree that this whole thing was a load of old hogwash. Jacopo D'Angelo, a scribe working in the papal court around the same time of the coronation described by Adam of Usk, rejected the idea of this rite of verification, writing, quote, Because the seats are pierced, the common people tell the senseless fable that someone touches the Pope as he sits on them to verify that he is indeed a man. The official papal historian Bartolomeo Platina, who I mentioned earlier, also casts doubt, adding to his account of Pope Joan a rejection of the myth of the verification rite, saying instead that the chair was instead, quote, prepared in such a manner so that the one who is invested with such great domination will know that he is not God, but a man, that as such he is subjected to the necessities of nature and must defecate. That is why the seat is rightly called the stercory, or excremental seat. However, these authoritative sources were unable to stop the spreading of this idea of the verification rite, and it continued to be spreading chronicles, whose audience was then turbocharged by the introduction of the printing press. In 1600, we got our first artistic interpretation in Johann Wolf's Lexiones, which shows the Pope sat on a throne with a cardinal kneeling behind him, lifting his robe up with one hand and reaching under the chair with the other. He leaves the rest up to the imagination. A few years later, a book by Swedish traveller Lars Bank included a similar image, which I'll share on social media. Lars also claims to have seen this taken place, but there are significant doubts as to whether that was actually true. I'll finish this little chair interlude by debunking the whole thing, as it all appears to be something of a misunderstanding combined with a lot of poetic licence. The first we hear about chairs with holes in them in a papal coronation comes in 1099 with Pascal II. This account has the new Pope sitting on two porphyry chairs in the Lateran Palace after being installed in St Peter's. This was part of a ritual that confirmed the new Pope's possession of this palace, and these two same chairs were used for the next 400 years, and survive to this day. 
One was nicked by Napoleon and carted off to the Louvre, and the other is in the Vatican Museum. If you were to examine these chairs, and I believe they are on display, you would indeed see a hole in each of them. It's in the shape of a very large keyhole. This isn't exactly the ideal shape for a testicular examination, but the final nail in this particular coffin is the back of the chair, which is tilted at around 45 degrees. This is a fairly aggressive angle, and makes it look more like a sun lounger than a chair, and will put the genitalia at completely the wrong angle to be examined. I'm really sorry to debunk this particular one, because it's a great story, but it is sadly untrue. Okay, so we've debunked the right of verification. But as we've seen, right through the high and late Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, there has been widespread agreement on the existence of Pope Joan. However, although widespread, it wasn't universal. Pope Pius II, when he was Bishop of Siena, criticised the ignorance of those who believed in Joan. But it was not until the mid-16th century that anyone in a position of authority at the Vatican questioned it. The date here is significant, as it came in the midst of the Reformation. I quoted a Protestant pamphlet in the first half, and that was far from the only time that a Protestant reformer used the story of Pope Joan as a means of criticising the papacy and denigrating its authority. For years, the church had put up with the story of Joan, but now it had become a real embarrassment. But... It couldn't just deny something that had become, by then, established fact. It needed proof. In the 1560s, an Augustine friar called Onofrio Panvinio was permissioned to write a new edition of Platina's Lives of the Popes. And in his research, he noticed there were many aspects of the story of Pope Joan that just didn't seem right. He, therefore, added three pages of commentary to Platina's account of Pope Joan in which he demonstrated that it was all a myth. And it is really a pretty remarkable piece of scholarship that still holds up today. He starts off by making the very fair point that the clergy and people of Rome were not idiots. They would not have elected someone to the papacy that they did not know well enough to see if they were a man or not. He then goes into chronology. He notes that the period that Joan was believed to have been Pope had no vacancy. The dates were accounted for by other popes, and those dates were backed up by contemporary sources. Moreover, sources from the time that Joan was supposedly kicking about, that he had access to, the same and perhaps more that we do as well, indicate that they did not mention her at all. How can that be so for such a momentous event? How could she have been both English and from Mainz? How could she have studied in Athens when that city barely existed in the 9th century? Joan is supposed to have taught publicly in Rome, but that practice was unheard of at the time. How could a Pope have hidden their pregnancy for nine months when they were constantly surrounded by others? These were all excellent points, and are basically the same arguments that are used today. The whole thing was just too fantastical, too ridiculous to be true, even by Vatican standards. When Panvinius' edition of The Lives of the Popes was published, his arguments about Joan found a ready audience. 
especially with the newly founded Jesuit order, and quickly the existence of Pope Joan came to be on the front line of the Reformation War of Words, at, you know, actual wars, between Catholics, who denied now the existence of Joan, and Protestants, who needed her to exist so that they could use her as an example of Catholic stupidity. Now, I'm not going to get into this War of Words, because it all made my head hurt reading it, but... Suffice to say that eventually, after a century of squabbling and bloody warfare, even the Protestants began to question whether Pope Joan was real. By their very nature, Protestants were deeply sceptical of legends and word-of-mouth tales. They had long criticised Catholics who held beliefs that existed outside of the Bible, and so it began to seem hypocritical for them to keep harping on about Pope Joan, the evidence for whose existence was questionable at best. The most famous Protestant refutation of Pope Joan came from David Blondel, a French Calvinist who wrote a whole book on the subject in 1647. It was initially met with indignation by Protestants who were angry that this weapon was being taken out of their anti-Catholic arsenal. But over time, Blondel's arguments were accepted. And by the 18th century, there were very few people left, Protestant or Catholic, that still believed in Pope Joan. It became more of a criticism of the fanaticism of the Middle Ages compared to the modern thinkers of the Enlightenment. And again, broadly, this view has persisted. Okay, so that's a nice, good, broad overview of the Pope Joan myth. But I'm sure many of you are sitting there and thinking, this is all very well and good, James, but if she never existed, then how did the story come about in the first place? We know why Protestants might want to initially believe in her. Joan was everything they excoriated about the Roman Catholic Church. A story based on no official record that portrayed the papacy that they despised as incompetent and ridiculous. Oh, and a bit of misogyny thrown in as well for good measure that I don't think you need me to explain. But why? 500 years on from the events they were describing, did different religious writers from across Europe come to write it all down into the official record? Well, vocal and learned listener, that's a very good question. The short answer is, as usual, we don't know. The long answer is very complicated and explained in great detail in a very complicated book written from French, which, again, made my head hurt and I won't ask you to read. So, I'll meet you in the middle. It's worth noting from the start that just because something was written down for the first time didn't mean that that writer came up with it. As I said earlier... Usually notions like this are misreadings based on misunderstandings, which then get sent through the oven of oral tradition until what you come up with is a half-baked story that is generally accepted, albeit with some details in dispute. That's how you get legends like Lady Godiva, Robin Hood or King Arthur. I think those are the best comparisons for what we're dealing with here. Remember too that this was a time when there wasn't a great deal written down. It wasn't easy to find out stuff about the past, and so it was easier for these legends to be emerged and harder for them to be debunked. So let's go into the basic building blocks of this myth and see what we can find. The first is the date when Joan is supposed to have lived. As I said before, the consensus in the sources was that Pope Joan ruled in the 9th century, with a common dating being in between the papacies of Leo IV and Benedict III. Now, you might have expected for there to be some sort of lengthy period of schism or misogyny, or some sort of long interregnum, a vacuum, if you will, for which this could fit. But no, the changeovers were pretty smooth. 
that there was a Pope John VIII in the 9th century, whose pontificate comes a few decades after Benedict III. His period as Pope was marked with considerable conflict with his opposite number slash subordinate, depends who you talk to, in Constantinople, the Patriarch. And many condemned Pope John for being womanly in his interactions. With Joan, of course, being the female name for John, maybe that's where it came from. This brings us neatly onto the name, but here we enter a world of trouble, as there isn't even agreement on what that was. Most use Joan or some variant, but others have it as Agnes, Anna, or even Gilberta. But let's stick with Joan. John was a very common name at the time, and as I said, there was a Pope John kicking around in the 9th century. More salaciously, during the wonderfully named Pornocracy, there were two infamous women at the centre of Vatican life, Marozia and Theodora, that had lovers and sons named John. Maybe it was just a name tainted by scandal. More on those ladies in the next episode, by the way. Then we have the curiosity of Joan's hometown. She is supposedly English, but grew up in Mainz. Why there? Well, as you may remember from the previous episode, the papacy and the German Holy Roman Empire were closely interlinked. Mainz was one of the great cities of the empire, so maybe it was just a convenient place to put her. She's then supposed to have gone to Athens before coming to Rome, and that again is odd. But then again, while Athens was in a period of severe decline in the 9th century, it did recover and was heavily associated from its ancient roots with learning. It's a bit like having to come up now with a story. You might have a snob from England, a billionaire from Texas, and Scottish actors playing the Irish. It's just the obvious thing to do. Next, why was she female? This is, of course, the crucial point, but it is worth asking. Well, well, of course, while all the priesthood were male then, as now, it's not like there weren't influential women in the Catholic faith. Before you even get into nuns and sisters, there are plenty of female saints, not to mention other contemporary women who did good deeds and were celebrated. By the late Middle Ages, when this myth was most popular, you even have countesses, duchesses and even queens ruling in their own right in parts of Europe. And, as we'll see, very influential women kicking around in the Vatican. So is it so ridiculous that a story might emerge of a female pope? And then, finally, there is the tone of the story. And that, I think, gets the rub of the story's popularity. If you look at the periods where the story was most popular, it was usually during times of crisis, be it war, plague, or institutional instability. Often, it was too dangerous to criticise the established order, or even talk about its weaknesses. So you had to use analogy to talk about something without talking about it. You could use the story of Pope Joan to talk about corruption, overbearing women, weak rulership, religious errors and discrepancies. This is true even now of depictions of Pope Joan, be it the 1982 play Top Girls or the eponymous 2009 film. Pope Joan is shown through a feminist lens in these versions, and it's easy to see why. A woman of intelligence forcing her way into a male-dominated world, rising to the top, a woman being faced with male violence and death when she dares to try and act like them, I mean, I can't think why that wouldn't be still resonating. At the beginning of the episode, I posed the questions of why this frankly rather ridiculous story has managed to survive for so long. And while I don't really have a good answer, I have two 
semi-okay ones. The first is that it's just a great story. It's set in a misty past that no one really understands. It has trickery, romance, a plucky underdog, a great action scene and a dramatic ending. There are plenty of other tall tales from the Middle Ages that are not well known today, and countless others that have not survived down the centuries for humble podcasts to talk about. I'm sure if the story had been boring, it would not have survived. And the second reason is that it's because so adaptable. It allowed Protestant to bash Catholics, Enlightenment writers to bash the Dark Ages, misogynists to bash women, feminists to bash misogynists, and of course podcasters to fill their time spinning a good yarn. Did she exist? No. But she is also the closest thing that we have ever come to a female pope, and that alone made her a great place to start this season. Now you'll be pleased to hear that she is the last mythical figure that I'll be covering in this season. The rest are all real people in the reliable historical record. But if you thought we were done with sex and violence, well then you haven't been paying attention. So join me next time as we travel into the pornocracy and the domination in Rome of the daughter of a consul who became a senator and the mistress and mother of popes. Trust me, you won't want to miss it. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.